I'll give you a fair warning here that my approach to our sermon today is going to be to uh, read the text and then we'll go kind of big picture. Uh, what exactly is this text getting at in, in the big picture of things? And then we'll be focusing on back on the text itself and on the relevant uh, details of the text. So don't, don't get lost at the front end. Uh, follow with me if you can. Uh, I will do my best to be clear throughout, but we're going to sort of jump back real quick and take a big picture look and then focus back in on the details and uh, what, what that means for us in our lives. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Let's give our attention now, brothers and sisters, to the reading of God's word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God now add his blessing to our reading and hearing of his word this morning. Well, it's not often that I get to uh, watch cartoon clips in my sermon preparation, but I did get to this week. I went back and watched certain clips from the 1994 Disney classic, The Lion King. Some of you maybe really enjoy that movie. Maybe you've seen even the Broadway performances of it, things like that. Uh, it comes on uh, my Pandora station in my house, and Nora, my daughter, really likes a lot of songs from The Lion King as well as a lot of the newer Lion King knockoff movies. But I went back and I watched one scene in particular from The Lion King that is very memorable for some of you, and maybe you even remember it as soon as I bring it up. But it's a moment where Simba, the main character, uh, is sort of struggling with his own identity. Spoiler alert, it's a 30-year-old movie, so I shouldn't even have to say spoiler alert, but I will anyway. Uh, you know that Simba uh, witnesses his father's death, and then he has this moment of doubt where he thinks perhaps he's the one who caused it, and causes him to run away. He flees, right? He doesn't want to be around his people anymore because of the guilt and the shame that he feels over the death of his father. And he's run off, and he's uh, teamed up with a, a, a duo, right? Timon and Pumbaa, right? And they've sort of been living out this worldview that they have of, uh, of just no worries, right? Hakuna Matata. If you even remember that old song. And he's been living in that world for a time and uh, sort of just doing whatever he pleases, living life as he chooses. But he has this moment of almost what we would call an existential crisis. Who am I? What am I doing here? Is this really what my life is about? And he has that moment where he's wandering off in the night and he encounters his uh, sort of prophet shaman friend, Rafiki, a little baboon. Rafiki informs him, I know who you are. I know who you are. You're Mufasa's son. And he has that encounter with his father where his father uh, sort of convicts him and chastises him. Simba, you've forgotten me. You've forgotten who you are and therefore you've forgotten me. He tells Simba his identity. You are my son. You're the one true king. And you need to go take your place in the circle of life. 
Simba had been dealing with this existential crisis. Who am I? What is my life about? And his father appears to him and tells him, here's what your life is about. Here's who you are. That is the common struggle that every human being deals with. Every life is dealing with these fundamental questions. Who am I? Where is my purpose found? How can I know where I fit in life? I know that we talk a lot about identity today. We have a lot of talk about identity, identity politics, people self-identifying, but this is a reality that has been going on since the beginning. Since the very beginning, we have struggled with these questions. Who am I? Who am I meant to be? What is my life all about? How can I gain approval? How do I know that I'm fitting in where I'm supposed to be? The question of identity from the very beginning has been our question. And fundamentally, the answers break down into one of two categories. One of two categories is where we're going to find answers to those questions. One view says that your identity and who you are and what your life is about is something that you have to discover and explore and achieve for yourself, right? According to this view, your identity is out there somewhere and it's on you to somehow find it and achieve it. We've got a couple nuances of, of how this way presents itself. Maybe you would think of it as achievement, right? that word achievement. Some people find their identity in their accomplishments and what they do. My job title defines me. The house that I own defines me. My ability to do certain things as a wife and mother define me. That's where I find my identity. These are the guys that put up all their accolades in their office about all the awards they've ever won and all the achievements they've ever accomplished. They want you to know, I have done some things with my life and that makes me important. Others in this path might do it through discovery. That's probably more common today. This is the view that says that my identity is sitting out there waiting for me to discover it and I have to go through some means to get there and find it for myself. That's the worldview presented to us in the transgenderism movement today. It tells our young men and young women that your real identity is hidden somewhere underneath all of this stuff and through either a self-mutilating surgery or through taking certain drugs, you can uncover the real you. But you've got to get through all this stuff first. This is the worldview that drives uh, wives and mothers to divorce their husbands and abandon their children and flee to places like India in the hopes of finding spiritual awakening and enlightenment. My identity is out here somewhere and I've got to go find it. I've got to go find myself. Who am I really? But on the flip side of that, there's another radically different approach to identity. We find it in the Bible. We find it in our life. It is the identity of reception, the path of receiving in identity. According to this view, you are defined, your identity is defined by your relationships, who you are, where you fit. Your identity is not waiting out there for you to discover it. It is something given to you, either through life circumstances, through your connections with key figures. That's what Mufasa told Simba in The Lion King. He's wrestling with this question, who am I? And he says, you're my son. 
Your, your primary identity is found in the fact that you are my son, Simba. You are the one true king, and therefore you need to go find your place in the circle of life. It's a radically different approach. Identity in this approach is not something out there waiting for you to uncover it. It's given to you from the get-go. It's a part of who you are from the very beginning. And now you're called to go out and explore and achieve out of an identity instead of in the hopes of finding an identity. One view treats your identity as something waiting at the end of a long tunnel. Hopefully you can uncover it in this life through all the different means we provide. And according to the other view, your identity is a given. You are who you are from the get-go, and everything you do flows out of who you are. That's the struggle we've had from the very beginning. What was the temptation that our first parents faced in the Garden of Eden? It was this tension between these two ways of approaching their identity. God had created them in his image. God had said, I have an identity for you. You are my image bearers. You are my rulers and representatives over the world, and I am giving you this calling to live out as my image bearers in the world I've made. And then along came the serpent in the garden who said, no, no, no. Actually, you have a greater identity waiting for you if only you will disobey the voice of God, listen to me, and eat the fruit that God has forbidden you to eat. If you will eat that fruit, Satan effectively told Eve and Adam, you will uncover who you really are. And God doesn't want you to do that. Was that not the lie in Genesis chapter 3? In the day you eat of it, you will not surely die, but you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And God doesn't want you to have that. There's this identity out there, Adam, Eve, waiting for you to uncover through your own efforts. If only you will disobey the voice of God and reject the identity he has given you and listen to me. It's a drastically different way. And we've seen throughout our human history its drastic consequences, haven't we? It matters how you approach the question of your identity. We know, in hindsight, the choice that Adam and Eve made. They chose to reject the word of God, to reject the identity he had given them, and instead to heed the voice of the serpent and to seek an identity for themselves of their own making apart from God. It's been the struggle from the start, and it's a struggle that Jesus himself faced. Our Lord Jesus faced this same struggle. I've often wondered, given the sort of conjoining and union of those two natures of Christ in one person. He has a divine nature and he's a human nature, but they're not mixed. They're not mingled together. Uh, Jesus has two distinct natures perfectly united in one person. But that leads to certain questions. Questions like, did Jesus know who he was? Was Jesus aware of who he was as God's only begotten son? It's, it's a valid question to ask. There are points in the gospel where Jesus himself tells us that there are things he doesn't know. We'll see it later on in Matthew in the Olivet Discourse. When Jesus is talking about his second coming, he will say, I don't even know the day of my second coming. Only the Father knows that. Jesus in his human nature is like us in that he takes on limitations of knowledge. He becomes like us. It's not a sin to not know something. 
And so when Jesus says that in his human nature, he doesn't know the day of his own second coming, it's not like a, a failure on his part. It's just what it means to be human. So I, I've wondered that before. Did Jesus, as he's growing up, is he aware of who he is? And if so, how is he aware of who he is? If he knows he's the son of God, how does he know that? No doubt his mother Mary would have told him from a very, very young age all the stories of what had happened to her and how he was miraculously conceived of the Holy Spirit. And his adopted father Joseph would have told him about the dreams he had had and what God had spoken to him about who Jesus was going to be. But it's fascinating that for all that, we don't have any record of a time when God the Father speaks to his son from heaven and confirms all of those statements about him. Not until his baptism. Not until he's 30 years old, at least as we have it recorded for us in the scriptures. Not until that point in time does God the Father speak from heaven and reveal to Jesus exactly who he is. And tell him, as we read in our text, you, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's interesting also that other gospel writers, Mark and Luke and John, when they record this account, it's God the Father speaking directly to Jesus. You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased, Jesus. Perhaps for the first time in his human life, this is when Jesus, our Savior, hears the voice from heaven, confirming everything that his mother and his adopted father and his cousin John the Baptist and his relatives have told him about everything that was true of him in his birth. And now, perhaps for the first time, he hears his, his father directly from heaven, confirming all these things. This is who you are, Jesus. You're my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with you. I'm proud of you. I love you, and I am proud of you. This is so significant because Jesus is about to go into the wilderness. We'll consider this more next week. But he's about to go be tempted, and he's going to face the same temptations that Adam and Eve faced. What is the temptation that Satan is going to come against him with? If you are the son of God, prove it. Right? If this is your identity, Jesus, if you're really the son of God, you ought to be able to turn rocks into bread, right? If you're really the son of God, you should be able to throw yourself off the temple and God wouldn't let you die. If you're really who God says you are, you ought to prove it. Don't just take God at his word. Don't just believe what God says about you. Prove it. Test God. See if it's not true. Exactly the same temptation that he used against Adam and Eve in the garden. They fell for it, and thank God, we read, we'll read next week, Jesus doesn't fall for it. He doesn't reject the voice of his father. He embraces it. He lives it out. He tells Satan, I don't need to prove it. My God is trustworthy. I'm going to take him at his word. And I'm going to live out the identity that he has given me, not the identity that you are tempting me with, Satan. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because of what Jesus is doing here. What do we see Jesus doing in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17? He comes to John to be baptized, which is significant and a little confusing for John. John's actually a little bit offended. You get the impression that he's trying to physically restrain Jesus at this point. Jesus, you don't understand what you're doing. Stop, stop, stop. Don't you know what people who come to my baptism are saying? People who come to my baptism are saying, I'm a sinner, I need to repent from sin and be cleansed by God from my sin. And John knows who his cousin is. Jesus, don't, you should be baptizing me. 
not the other way around. I have sins, Jesus. You don't have any sins. Why are you doing this? Why are you waiting in line to be baptized like all these other sinners that have come out to me? It's the same kind of thing that happens to Peter in John chapter 13 when Jesus bends down with a towel and girds himself to serve and to wash his disciples' feet. Peter's confused, right? John 13, verse 6, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? That's not the way this works. I should be washing your feet. I should be serving you. And again, Jesus tells Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. This is the way we have to do it, Peter. Why? Because Jesus is coming as my representative. He is coming in my place to do for me everything that I should have been doing in service to God. That's what Jesus came to do. He came into the world to save sinners. How did he come to save sinners? He came to take our sins on himself and give all of his goodness to us. That's what he came to do. That's why he's coming to be baptized. That's why he submits to John's baptism. Not because he has sins of his own that need forgiving, but because he's going to take our sins on himself. And so he is being baptized for me. He's repenting for my sins. He's confessing my sins. And he's doing it so that he can give me his perfect goodness. Everything that I should have been doing, obeying God's word, living out the identity God gave me, everything that I should have been doing from the beginning, he's going to do for me. And all of the curse and the consequence of the rebellion and things I have done, he's going to take on himself and bear it in my place. He is going to resist the temptations of Satan to live out the identity that God gave him, and he's going to give that goodness to me, and he's going to take the evil of our rejection of God's word and our rejection of God's given identity to us, and he's going to say, I'll be treated as if I had done that. That's what it means for him to be my savior. That's what it means for him to be a mediator between God and man. He's a representative. He represents me. And when he does in my place what I was always supposed to do, all of his blessings become mine. And when he goes to the cross and dies for my sins and the sins of his people, all the curse that should have been mine becomes his. Why does that matter? It matters because now, Christian, you stand with a new identity. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that you are no longer the person that you once were. God doesn't view you the same way anymore. You now have a new identity. Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, I died on the cross. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is saying to the Galatians, look, when Christ was crucified, I was there with him because he was my representative. So inasmuch as he has died for my sins, I have died. And now I, Paul, I don't even live anymore. Paul, apart from Jesus Christ, doesn't exist anymore. The only Paul that exists now is Paul with Jesus Christ, living in me. And Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything I do now, Paul says, is shaped by this new identity I have in Christ. 
I'm not the same person that I once was. Paul, apart from Christ, doesn't exist anymore. The only one that exists is me with Jesus living in me. And now I get to live out that identity in the world before me. God has taken us from being children of wrath, as Ephesians 2, 3 puts it. Naturally born in sin, children of God's wrath. And now God has adopted us as his own children. John 1, 12 says that as many as received Christ, to them he gave power. He gave the right to become children of God. You and I, because of sin, are born children of wrath and children of the devil, as Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of John. But now, because of what God has done for us in Christ, you have a new identity. You're not a child of wrath anymore, Christian. You're a child of God. And when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you the same way anymore. How do, how do you think God looks at you, Christian? When God the Father looks down from heaven and he looks at your life, what do you think his opinion is? What does he say to himself in heaven when he looks at your life? Do you think he sits up in heaven and he says, Man, what a miserable, rotten sinner. I can't believe I've got to put up with people like this. Jesus, are you sure you wanted to die for these people? Because, man, they just can't even get it together, right? Maybe he look, you think he looks at your life and he just sits there and goes, how many times can this bozo screw this up? How many second chances do I have to give this guy? Here he comes. Here he comes back to confess the same sins again for the hundredth time. Is that how you think God looks at you? It's how he looked at you apart from Christ. But now that you're in Christ, that's not how he looks at you anymore. That's not his opinion about you. The heavenly verdict about your life is not that anymore. When God looks at you now, in Christ by faith, he says the same thing about you that he said about Jesus. That's what it means to be represented by Jesus. It means that when God looks at your life, he says about you the same thing he said about Jesus. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter, and in you I am well pleased. And you say, but I've got all these sins. And he says, I know. My son took care of it all. Jesus took care of it all. I keep messing things up. I knew you were going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm all-knowing. I know the future. I knew what you were going to do and who you were going to be and all the struggles you were going to face. I knew all the ways that you were going to fall short of my righteousness. Jesus dealt with all that. So now, when God the Father looks at you, all he sees, the only thing he sees, is the goodness of his son. So now, his declaration over your life is the same thing that he said about Jesus. You are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter, and I am well pleased with you. I'm proud of you. Can I point out to you that God the Father says this to Jesus before he has done anything of his ministry? This is at the front end of his ministry. He hasn't done anything. Some of y'all grew up in households. And, and moms, I'm not trying to make you sound irrelevant. You're not. Um, you, you never are. But, but the opinion of a father, and in particular the pride of a father, are very powerful things, whether it's given or withheld. Some of y'all grew up in homes where your dad never told you he loved you. Or your dad never told you he was proud of you. And every time you thought of it, it was always this emphasis on if I start doing more, if I get that job one day, if I go to this college and graduate at the top of my class, if I achieve these things, then maybe my father will be proud of me. 
and you've just been trying all of your life with that achievement mindset, if I just do enough, if I just achieve enough, then maybe I can have the approval of people I need. And, and maybe then I can have an identity that is safe and secure and people will love me and be proud of me. That's not how God works. God says it to you right now. The, the moment you become a Christian, that's what God says about your life. I love you and I'm proud of you. Not because of what you've done, because of what Jesus has done for you. That's what grace means. It means that God doesn't consider you on your own merits anymore. He doesn't look at you alone by yourself anymore. He only looks at you in Christ. And now, you are free in Christ to live out that identity. See, some of y'all are afraid, right? You grew up with dads like that where they withheld pride, they withheld love from you. And the, the emphasis was, well, if I tell him I'm proud of him now, he won't have drive to go do anything, right? If I give him my love now, he won't feel the desire to go out and achieve something. It's the exact opposite way that it actually works. Men and women who grow up with fathers who withhold pride and love end up miserable and depressed and anxious about everything because they're constantly trying to find that identity and finally reach that point of I know who I am and I matter and my life is important to people. But God works the exact opposite way. He tells you who you are up front. Here's the identity I'm giving you. You are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. I'm proud of you. Not because of anything that you have done or will do. You'll understand, I tell Nora I'm proud of her already. She's not even three years old yet. She hasn't done anything with her life yet. And yet I'm proud of her. Not because of what she's done or will do, but because she's my daughter. Because of who she is. That's how God thinks of you, Christian. And now you are free to go and do things and explore life and achieve things for God's glory, not in the hopes that one day he will love you and be proud of you, but living out of the fact that he already loves you and is proud of you. That makes a world of difference. To know who you are from the get-go frees you to joyfully pursue the life that God created for you and has for you to live now. It doesn't deter us. It doesn't make us lazy. It gives us the confidence we need to actually do the things God wants us to do. And we do it not in the hopes of earning his pride or earning his love, but because Jesus represents me, I do it out of the fact that I have those things. God loves me. God is well pleased with me. I have an identity given to me by God, and now I get to live it out in the world around me. It's what we see in the baptism of Jesus. And because he's doing that as my representative, he's doing it for me, and it counts for me. Christian, by faith, I hope it's counting for you too. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this word. We thank you for your goodness to us, God, and we pray that you'd please put these truths deep in our hearts. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would please, Lord, help us to stop striving, to stop fretting and working and accomplishing in the hopes of maybe one day finding out who we really are. Oh, Lord, instead, help us to simply by faith receive the identity you have for us in Christ. By faith, simply to receive as a gift 
the adoption as sons and daughters of God. And then, Lord, to live out of that in a joyful life, a life that is characterized by gladness, even having to endure suffering, doing it gladly because we already know who we are. Lord, there is power in these truths to change our lives, and I pray that we would not miss it. God, work these things into our hearts. Give us the confidence as your sons and daughters to come before you boldly every day, to always know, Lord, that my Father is there, that my Father loves me, that my Heavenly Father is well-pleased with me, not because of what I've done, but because of who I am in Christ. All these things we ask in his name. Amen.